everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right, everyone, it is Brandon back with the turbo. I don't know if it's just the severe sleep deprivation, but for some reason I can't help it. And I really want to get into some controversy today. There is yet another recent thread on Twitter getting into the word providers. And of course, things always turn into this question around, I guess, what we're mostly calling, quote, advanced practice providers these days. And usually what people mean is physician assistants and nurse practitioners, although, of course, there are others. In the critical care setting, that's generally who we mean. So I'm just going to get into it. I don't care. I'm crazy like that. I'm going to answer the question today about PAs, and really this probably mostly applies to nurse practitioners, but I don't feel like I can speak for them. Are PAs as good as doctors? Now, if your blood is already starting to boil, then this is probably for you. And I think the most important conclusion here, not to spoil it, is that this is not an answerable question because it is too poorly defined. Really what you're asking with this question is one of several other questions, and I think the most important are three things. First of all, are PAs equally trained as physicians at their baseline? Second, regardless of their baseline, do they have the ability to reach the same competence or at least adequate competence in any particular area? And then finally, are they capable of filling a specific clinical role uh, adequately, safely, appropriately, providing good care? Okay, I'm going to get into those one by one. So to start with, are they equally trained at their baseline? Of course, the answer to this is no. Individuals are different, but just comparing these two buckets of people, people come out of PA school with significantly less time to their training, uh, less coursework, less didactic time, and less clinical time. So no matter how you stack it, at their baseline, these people have less training. Of course, it's different training, but I really think it's reaching for someone to try to say, well, they spend two years in school compared to four plus a residency, but it's all very dense and efficient, so it must be the same. Obviously, that's false. These people are not as trained at their baseline from a general perspective of medical kind of core training. And you see this in the translation to practice. Every PA requires a significant amount of initial onboarding orientation training when they start practicing clinically. Now, how much of this they need depends a ton on what they get into. You know, if you're going into something like primary care, which most PA programs emphasize in school, in other words, there's sort of a, a attitude, a pretense that what you're being trained for is to work in primary care. And of course, they realize that many people are not going into primary care, but historically, that's sort of a niche that we were meant to fill, um, and it's just kind of a good baseline general uh, perspective on training, and then if you're going to specialize, that's on you. 
so if you do go into primary care, there's much less that you need to pick up in order to kind of get up to speed. But even then, and certainly if you're getting into something more specialized like critical care, you have to learn a lot. And this should go without saying because just like a, an intern who's just finished medical school uh, coming on to practice medicine for the very first time is really kind of needs a lot to even figure out how to do the basics of day-to-day -day medicine, at least as much true for us, and if not more so, because at least they have an additional year of clinical rotations. So yeah, you see this difference in baseline in the initial training and what we need. There's no arguing this. In some cases, this difference may be partially balanced by some of the other differences in our background. So one example could be a more targeted or less general pathway of training experience. So for example, I have been a PA for seven some years at this point. 100% of that time has been in critical care. So after school, which was general rotations, I've never worked outside a critical care setting. Whereas uh, a physician who's going into critical care, you know, would first do their, their broad rotations in school, and then they would have to do a broad residency in something like internal medicine or some surgical field or anesthesia or whatever, and only then uh, specialize in critical care. Now, without a doubt, that broader background has its own utility to it as well. But there is some push and pull here. If I had had to do all that general training, then my critical care experience at this point would be many years less. You know, we, uh, when I was in residency for critical care, I did a one-year PA residency for that purpose, um, it was interesting to note that when we worked alongside the pulmonary critical care fellows at the institution, the amount of time we spent in the ICU was actually similar to them. They were in a three-year program. But a lot of that time, and this depends on the program, was either pulmonary-related or it was research. They were a research-heavy program. So the amount of actual clinical training they were doing in critical care was not that dissimilar to our one-year you know, PA critical care program. That doesn't really mean anything, but just kind of going to serve the point that a more focused pathway can give you a little bit of a, a balancing leg up to more generalized folks. The other aspect is what were you doing before school? So the whole original concept of PAs was that they were paramedics, combat medics, who were retrained to provide services like primary care. So they already had this substantial clinical background and they were just being retrained, redirected onto a new pathway in medicine, which of course required additional training, but they weren't starting from scratch. This has uh, become much less true as time has passed. Many, many people you see coming out of PA school, that was their plan all along. All programs still require some clinical background and kind of patient care experience, but for more and more people, they're just kind of picking these up, minimum hours up doing something. Maybe they were a scribe or they worked at the desk in a doctor's office or something. You can't really say they had a, a true career in medicine and therefore they've lost some of this experience. But if you do still have someone coming out of PA school who was um, a nurse for 10 or 20 years or a, a medic for you know many years, um, or of course this is a good time to bring in the NPs, in a parallel way of thinking, many of them historically were supposed to be very experienced nurses, 
maybe not so much true nowadays, but if they are, that does bring them something that, again, may balance out some of that initial difference in training versus the physicians. So those are things to think about. But are we equally trained at initial baseline? No. Are we safe as a sub-question here? In other words, yes, there's a difference there, but can these people come out of school, start seeing patients, and do it safely, provide good care? And, you know, good care is a little bit of a nebulous term. Brian and I have talked about before how this is easy to say on paper. Everyone should receive the very best care. It's really not, that's really not what you want, or at least it's not realistic. Everyone can receive the very best possible care in every case for every problem in every setting. Um, what people need to have is, is, is good enough care, adequate care, the standard of care. Um, and can PAs provide that? Yeah. This is a really a separate question. The question here is not how good are they, it's how good are they at recognizing their own knowledge and their own deficits in knowledge. Because it's assumed early on, and really forever to the extent that this position is meant to function in collaboration or under the supervision of a physician. The question here is when do you need to ask for help? As long as you can appreciate those times, then there's no issue about safety, even if you don't know much. And this is how it works when people are, are fresh out of school. Yes, they're getting trained or oriented in their jobs, maybe in the ICU, uh, but you know, maybe that's over. Maybe it's been some months and they're, quote, independent. How can they function safely? Well, they just have to know when they need help. Patient's real sick. There's something they haven't seen before. They're talking to their boss. They ask for some help. That's fine. And as long as people are picking up that skill set, there's no issue here. And I think by and large they are, but it's perhaps another question and a fair one to ask. Are there people going around practicing unsafely because they, they lack this self-awareness? Okay, question number two, and I hope you'll see how this is different. Regardless of initial baseline, do these people have the ability to reach the same competence in any particular setting or specialty or area of practice in medicine uh, compared to a physician? And the answer is yes, mostly. The question here was ability, not uh, do people tend to. Um, yes, by and large, people can reach the same skill sets in any one area. In many cases, it will be a harder road. It will be more uphill. There will be more obstacles to getting there. And this is partly due to the difference in initial training and also partly because there are less pathways and opportunities available to reach some goals. Uh, you know, the physician who wants to become super hyper-specialized in some area, it may be difficult to do, but there's usually a clearly defined pathway to that. Maybe they do a residency, then a fellowship, and then a, a sub-fellowship, and then they really just kind of pursue that pathway at the appropriate institutions until... That's their thing. For a PA who's trying to get into something at the same level, you probably have to find those opportunities or in some cases make them. We've talked about there are some formal postgraduate training programs, residencies, fellowships, whatever you want to call it. Other than that, um, and other than the fact that, yes, most jobs will do some training for you when you're hired, when you want to pursue additional training and experience, which will be what defines your practice, you by and large have to find the way, find the jobs, find the, the mentors, uh, find the opportunities to get those skills, and then people will, by and large, let you use them. Brian and I have talked about this at great length. But you need to have the ability to both create those avenues as well as to pursue them, whereas perhaps 
uh, for their positions, often they have to just pursue them. Not that that's easy. It can be very competitive and a great deal of work, but there are some specific limitations in some areas that may apply more so to us. Common example, no matter how smart you are or who you work for, the PA will never be the surgeon, the primary surgeon of record in the OR. They may assist, they may do procedures that are maybe not surgery per se on their own. Um, hey, maybe the surgeon ducks out for a while, but on paper, they will never be the primary surgeon. So if that's what you want, this is the wrong field for you. In very highly skilled, especially procedural areas, even that are not surgery, this also probably applies. For example, I have some interest in ECMO. Uh, several years ago, I learned to cannulate and put patients on the pump at the great reanimate course in California. Um, however, just by acquiring that skill, at least in a classroom setting, I've never done it. And it would be very difficult for me to find a position where I could cannulate for ECMO. This is something that many centers are not doing at all. If they are doing, it's probably being limited to uh, kind of the highest skilled people for that particular procedure. And for a PA to come do that would be an additional ask. It would be that much harder when it's already hard to get this kind of program going in many places. On the sort of leadership and academic side, there are similar obstacles. You know, if you were a PA and your your dream was to do something like be the, the director of a, an agency, uh, an ICU, heck, the CEO or president of a hospital, uh, especially if some of the people you're supervising are physicians, it, that that's a difficult ask as well. And, you know, some of these limitations are perhaps eroding and, and things change, but it's just unlikely at this point that that would be available to you outside some really specific uh, situations. Um, if you needed the appearance of expertise for something, say um, legal testimony, and many PAs do some work in uh, medical consultation, but I mean to be the guy who puts on a suit and sits in the... Uh, in the courtroom and uh, gives a testimony um, where the whole reason you exist and are getting paid is because you you look credible and highly authoritative. You know, if the other side can come and say, hey, are you a doctor? And you have to say, well, well, no. And then for all this jury is going to have the appearance that there could be somebody who was more specialized than you. Again, it's hard to get into that kind of role probably. So again, these are our softer limitations that may be going away over time. You know, I, I have seen situations where, you know, PAs or, or nurse practitioners or, are running a, a particular program at a hospital, in some cases with physicians working under them. If you can really prove that you are the best, most skilled person, most competent person to do something, then you can try to get into it. It's just, uh, it's going to be harder. Other angles on this. Is it true that the physician's because of the greater initial training they have, you know, because of even the additional time in school doing, you know, basic sciences, learning pathology and embryology and genetics and cytology, uh, you know, things that are maybe not directly clinically relevant. You know, they have more prerequisites for school. They had to take physics, where most PA programs don't require that. All these things that you could argue create additional foundations to their training. Does that create a more potential for learning, a, a bigger vessel that, you know, regardless of kind of 
clinical skills, which they probably have a somewhat leg up because they have a little more time during clinicals in school. But over time, those things balance out. But does that initial training create a, a bigger vessel for their eventual potential? Maybe. Um, I could see an argument for that. Certainly, it depends very much on the person. Some people's vessel is mainly defined by their uh, perspective and personality. Uh, other people will you know, blow their vessel wide apart, and it doesn't matter where they came from. But there is something to that. Um, I think a, a fair comparison here would be you know, for the doctors. Um, let's say they go and they do specialized fellowship training in an area, especially an area where it's not really required. So you know, if you're a, a general surgeon, then you do a fellowship in cardiothoracic surgery. You're going to be a cardiothoracic surgeon, um, and there are many jobs you couldn't have if you hadn't had that training. That's a little different. But say you, you're an ED doc and you, you do an ultrasound fellowship. You know, you're not really going to get different jobs probably because of that. It's not really adding um, specific scope of practice to your job, maybe some specific studies and techniques, but, you know, you're not kind of changing your whole job or practice. It's just additional training. It doesn't make you fundamentally forever different from someone who didn't have it. It's just, it's giving you an additional bolus of, of training and, and tools early on probably in your career that you may want to have. It's uh, It kind of speeds things up. Could you eventually get all of that in some other way, just by on-the-job training, uh, self-directed training, finding other training opportunities? Perhaps. If you compare you from someone who didn't have that fellowship training, um, can we necessarily tell the difference forever? Maybe, maybe not. You know, it, clearly it's doing something for you, but that difference uh, may wash out over time and there may be other ways to get to the same place. So I, I think that's a fair comparison for some of this. Your differences in, in where you're starting, certainly some difference in trajectory, but it, not mutually exclusive. There is overlap from the different pathways you can take here. Okay, final question we're asking is, is a PA capable of, of doing a, a specific job in medicine, filling a specific role um, adequately, you know, doing that job. And yes, it certainly in pretty much every case, the answer is yes. We talked about baseline training, but regardless of baseline, you know, anyone's training and skills rapidly become mostly about the individual, um, what they can do, uh, what they're good at, and in particular with their experience, what they learn after school. And really, most people can be trained to do anything. Why is anyone not doing anything? Well, they don't want to, it's not their interest. And certainly, uh, some people may be better at some things, they have more aptitude for it. Um, but if the question is, can someone do a certain job, then unquestionably, yes, a PA generally can. Um, are there certain positions that are particularly well suited for a PA? or let's say easier to get them into, so they're, they're more kind of at baseline prepared for it. Yeah, you know, we talked about primary care. Heck, you can imagine some very specific, limited role in the clinical setting, like doing pre-ops or something for a surgeon, where uh, it would make a lot of sense just for efficiency to have a PA do it instead of a surgeon, because that frees up the surgeon to do other things. Now, I'm not suggesting that's a, a a very great or rewarding job for a PA. That's up to you. It wouldn't be for me. But and you could see how on paper that would make sense. Uh, whereas other positions may be more uphill, 
as we said, harder to get into for a PA because it requires more training, which may be harder to come by. But none of those necessarily have anything to do about the quality or usefulness of the final product. Yes, a PA can do most jobs. Can any PA do any job with any background in training? No, certainly not. So hopefully those answers give some more nuanced perspective on this. Let me close with a few general points here. And I think these are hard to argue with. Well, you could argue about anything, but I think to me they're definitely true. Number one, it may be true that the different life stories that bring people to these different roles also play some role. For example, medical school has become only more and more and more competitive at each step to get into school, to get good test scores, to get into good programs, and then good residencies, and so on. Um, now, certainly, PA school is competitive as well. There used to be this trope that it was just numbers-wise more competitive to get into PA school than medical school. I don't think that's true. At least doesn't seem to be true uh, qualitatively. But uh, is it true that having lived through that, you know, some people their entire life, they know they wanted to go to medical school and they live their life that way, selects for certain traits, maybe good traits like hardworkingness, uh, you know, scientific backgrounds, people who do more research or into that kind of thing. Maybe traits that are ambiguously good, like the ability to sort of play the game, to check boxes and and look good on paper and to present yourself well at, as they have to so many times to, to get accepted for things and uh, you know score well on things and, and be liked and get letters and so on. Uh, maybe. Maybe even some negative things like a homogenization of their, their life experience in a, a kind of more limited perspective than say someone who had that traditional pathway of, for the PA or someone who you know, was a medic or something. Um, those perspectives are, are, are kind of lost. So there's kind of pros and cons potentially here. There are also potential pros and cons to the different amount of investment in the training for these different groups of people. And I mean here not just for the kind of patient care, but for them. Uh, we've talked about this on the podcast a little, but the mere fact that one of these groups of people has to put more years and, you know, years equate also to money in a way uh, before they're able to practice fully in whatever their specialty of choice is uh, compared to someone like a PA where they can kind of jump right into a job out of school. We've talked about how they still need to be trained, but there's less mandatory training. There is optional training. And again, there's training on the job, but I think this does make differences. I think having less of that mandatory initial training limits burnout and maybe improves job satisfaction because, you know, in some ways people can somewhat enjoy their, their training as residents and fellows and whatever, but it is, is obviously hard. They work a tremendous amount, they don't make much money and so on. Um, so kind of delaying your, your real job so late into life, I think contributes to people being dissatisfied once they finally get there. Even if the job is 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 okay, it, it maybe feel like it wasn't worth it. Whereas for us, uh, even if it was the same job, maybe it feels more worth it. I think there's something to that, as well as the fact that we can change jobs. You don't feel as trapped because there is that lateral mobility. Um, now there's a downside here, which is that the ability to change jobs means people do change jobs, and therefore turnover is fairly high 
in many PA positions. And in a field like critical care, where there is a lot of training you need to be competent and certainly to be good at it, it can be hard to keep people in those positions and retaining those skills and continuing to build on them. Many places, many of these jobs, the average you know, time and grade in that specialty is maybe a few years. It's not 5, 10, 15, 20 years. There is usually a few of those people. Whereas for the physicians, of course, it's longer because they have that mandatory training and then they can't very easily change fields once they have reached that point. Now, again, that may contribute to them being grumpy sometimes, but it means uh, they retain more of that specialized training and that may make a difference for patient care. It's hard to say. One question I didn't ask or answer today is, are these entities of PAs or NPs, these quote, advanced practice providers, mid-levels, physician extenders, names are whole. Whole another question, but this kind of type of entity in modern healthcare in you know the United States, which is what I'm used to, although they've been introduced in other countries, clearly the demand seems to be there. You know, are they a, an overall plus? Like, <laughs> it, is healthcare better off having them? Are they useful? Um, I don't know. Probably, I, I think. I mean, I think there's an important niche there. But this is really a whole different question from the one we're asking about, you know, what this means to patients. Can we kind of practice medicine effectively and, and safely and help people? This is about economics and, you know, market supply and demand forces. Another question that I, I'm not really going to get into because I, I just don't feel equipped to address it is, you know, what our existence means to physicians personally? Do we have an impact on their training opportunities, um, on their job opportunities? Are we competing for the, some of the same jobs? Are we competing for some of the same money to the extent that resources are limited? Again, I, I don't know. Uh, somebody else can probably tackle some of this, but uh, wait until my final thoughts on that. Um, ultimately, I think for, you know, any particular trade or, or skill set, and, and certainly this means, you know, let's say critical care medicine or any sub-skill within it, there are baseline differences on average between groups with differing training, such as a PA and, let's say, a physician intensivist. There certainly are. However, and this applies here, and I'm sure for other people, the, the, the range, the standard deviation within those groups is so great between the individuals you find there based on their personalities, their individual skill sets, their proclivities, their amount of experience, the you know, exposures they've sought out, where they've worked, what kind of things they've done, and so on. Those differences are so great that they always exceed the differences between groups. In other words, the, the two groups overlap. And that overlap only increases as time passes from their initial training when it becomes more and more about who they are and what they've done since then. The overlap becomes nearly complete. And ultimately, it, it becomes impossible, I think, to distinguish who a person is purely based on their training. If I, if I gave you two, you know, they used to do the, uh, the Pepsi challenge, they give them the, the sodas, they do blind testing and try to guess which one was Coke and Pepsi. You know, you, you had people do blind taste tests on individuals based on, you know, the sorts of medicine they're practicing or skill sets or whatever. Could you guess 
who was, you know, the physician, who was a PA or other differences in backgrounds, you know, maybe, I'm not saying that you, you couldn't have some success here, maybe even statistically significant, but could you do that uh, without error? Could you always tell? No, I don't think so. The, those differences between individuals and recognizing that range there is not a contradiction with acknowledging the differences on average between groups and particularly uh, in their baseline training. You know, in medicine, I, I think we're pretty understanding that looking at groups in general and making generalizations about them it doesn't mean you can't recognize individual variation within those groups and recognize the extent of the variation, how much range there is. And I think that's one of the takeaways here. You cannot generalize very effectively other than saying some very broad things and focusing on initial training. So these are all pretty complex questions. And I think what we should take away is, yes, they're complex. Yes, the differences between individuals is always far greater than between groups. But I also think we should take away the recognition that when we address these questions, we are all biased. And in this complex arena, we are all biased to only look at and see the aspects that pertain to our own interests. For instance, making statements that equate an APP with a physician and you know, suggest that they're in some way similar or doing similar jobs or in the same playing field. For some people who are sensitive about this, it makes them think, you know, as a physician, why did, I, why did I bother then with all this extra training, all the years of my life, all the money spent, if I'm just going to be considered similar to someone who doesn't have all that? I understand that bias, but I hope it's clear that that's not really relevant to the questions we're asking. And that's why I think we have to ask specific questions, not broad ones like, are PAs any good? You're conflating multiple factors and multiple viewpoints here. It's like saying, why bother recycling when there's war in the Middle East? There's just, there's no connection between those things, at least not one that you can, you can pull on and pursue to anywhere useful. You're just, you're just getting into emotions now. So, I, you know, I encourage commentary and analysis of these issues when it's appropriate, but I also encourage people to aim it in focusing it on what they know and not generalize beyond that. It's too easy to take specific statements of fact and start to feed them and grow them until they are connoting or denoting positive or negative things about entire groups of people, entire concepts when it's not supported. At the end of the day, as the saying goes, great minds talk about ideas, average minds talk about events, and small minds talk about people. Of course, there are times we have to talk about people, the roles they play, their training, what they do in the clinical setting. However, by and large, I think we are all much better served talking about medicine and not about the people who practice it alongside us. Talk to you next time.